You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Well, good morning once again, all. Uh, we're certainly thankful for, you know, Jamie's doing that every quarter and doing it in a way that's, you know, engaging and not boring at all, which I'm certainly thankful for, so thanks. Uh, so last weekend, we began a brand new message series called Encounters, and this is a six-week series that's going to continue on through Easter weekend, and it's six weeks in the Gospel of Mark, and we're calling this Encounters because we're looking specifically at individual encounters Jesus had with a various number of people. And how their lives were changed because of it. When we were putting this series together, we thought of this quote from the Christian author Philip Yancey when he said, No one who meets Jesus ever stays the same. You know, the series has very much been inspired by that idea. You'll see that kind of DNA throughout the entire six weeks. Or put another way, uh, no one who has a legitimate real life encounter with Jesus ever stays the same. It's where encounters come from. So today we're looking at two main encounters that Jesus has in the second and third chapters of Mark. And in this, uh, we're going to see Jesus' power, his authority, and his compassion all converge on these individuals, and their lives are going to be changed forever. Uh, First, I'm going to talk about uh, Jesus healing a paralyzed man in Mark 2, and then Roger's going to come up and talk Mark 3 when Jesus heals uh, a man's deformed hand. So this last Friday, I was scrolling through my Twitter feed, and when I came across an article put out by Relevant Magazine uh, that just struck me as, well, uh, noteworthy enough to bring up with you guys, uh, this guy named Brandon Harvey, he's an Instagram personality, and he's a podcast host of the podcast Sounds Good, uh, he started this Kickstarter campaign for what's called the Good Newspaper, which calling it that, I was like, all right, this is going to be certainly interesting to read about, and I read a description uh, the Good Newspaper, it's going to be a quarterly printed newspaper uh, that's, um, quote, sharing hopeful stories you might not know about and helps you become good news by providing tangible action steps on how to make a difference in the world in big and small ways. The stories and tools inside will leave you feeling less overwhelmed and more capable of being part of the good in the world. And it goes on, the Good Newspaper, it's a reminder that there is good news in the world to be hopeful about, <clears throat> A map for how to feel, uh, move from feeling helpless to taking action, and a tool for those confused on how to get involved in the march against things like uh, division and terrorism, fear and injustice. So I clicked on the Kickstarter link, and they had their original goal of $26,000. At least Friday, uh, they had exceeded that by quite a wide margin. And so if you're interested, uh, check out the good newspaper. I think the first uh, issue is out this coming May. But I struck that, and that struck me as, uh, it's like, you know what, uh, it's... Certainly no, um, uh, not a strange thing to us to turn on the news and just wish that there was something good that could be reported. And uh, you know what, I'm guessing uh, even though we can feel that, how palpable that is now, um, that's probably always been the case. You know, if we go back to when, uh, you know, when Jesus was doing his tour, I imagine that just as now, back then, good news may have been hard to come by. And Jesus comes on the scene with his brand new, never-before-heard good news. And that's where we find ourselves when we start off Mark. Uh, I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 2, the first 12 verses. And uh, like I usually like to, I'll just kind of go verse by verse. And we'll stop every now and again to kind of flesh out and kind of make this uh, interaction come alive for us this morning as best we can. 
Uh, So starting with uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. And we'll stop there. Now it says that Jesus returned to Capernaum after a number of days. So the question is, well, where was he? If you check out the end of uh, Mark chapter 1, and Roger got into some of this last week. He was mainly camped out in Mark 1 in last week's message. Uh, He was on this uh, healing tour, just going all around Galilee, and it just got to a point where uh, he just got tired. You know, we know that Jesus loves people, but he is still a person, and, you know, just like anyone else, we need our alone time. We need to get away. It said that he actually had to keep going farther and farther into secluded places because people would just not leave him alone. They wanted to be healed. They wanted his attention. They wanted his action. Which makes total sense because just like today, as it was back then, whenever Jesus is actively moving, people are going to take notice. He's someone that draws attention. And it's because that Jesus was bringing this brand new message, this brand new good news message that no one had really heard before. If you look at uh, Luke chapter 4, he just kind of stands up in church one day, takes the stage and sits down and starts teaching and kind of announces exactly what he is all about. This is how it reads from Luke 4. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. That is the gospel. That is the good news. So back to Mark 2. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. And we'll pause again. Uh, So try picturing the scene with me. Uh, I have an imagination and I have, you know, my head movies going on. I imagine you guys do too, so get the reel going. Uh, Most scholars think that Jesus was likely staying at Peter's house and this was an upper middle class home. And Jesus is having some downtime when word gets out that he's back in town, and soon, no surprise, the entire house is packed. It's standing room only, even outside the door, into the front yard. You can just imagine there's people just packed in so tight so they can hear the words of Jesus. Me, I even imagine that people are trying to control their breathing because no one, even wants, no one wants to miss even a single word. He is that captivating of a teacher. Meanwhile, these four men carrying their paralyzed friend on a stretcher, they get there late. They've beaten the rush. You know, they likely heard that Jesus was back in town, and they rushed to pick up their friend wherever they had uh, dropped him off that particular day, maybe on a street corner or a sidewalk so we could collect some money. And they pick up their friend. They're in a rush because they've heard or maybe even seen that this Jesus guy can perform miracles. And so the thought is maybe Jesus might be able to heal their friend. So by the time they get to uh, Peter's house where Jesus is staying, um, in a way, uh, all the good seats are taken, so to speak. Even the nosebleeds. So they think about this, and their solution is really quite simple. It's certainly creative, too. It says, we can't get through the front door, we can't get through the crowd, we're going to go through the roof. We're going to take the most direct route to get to Jesus himself. Verse 4. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. 
Again, back to Andrew's head movie. I love, I, I just kind of put like this sort of sheepish grin on this paralyzed guy's face as he's being, uh, you know, Jesus is in the middle of his sermon when clumps of clay just start falling, falling all around him. And then this big sun, ray of sunshine just comes bursting through the roof. And then slowly, this guy with a sheepish grin just kind of, you know, slowly is lowered right in front of Jesus. And you know that the entire house is silent. I mean, you can imagine if this happened here, you know, someone just interrupted Andrew's sermon. That'd be odd. (laughs) So the house is silent, and you know they're all just wondering, what is Jesus going to do now? And what happens is, you know, we're not surprised by Jesus' words, but everyone in the house would have been because he says, nothing, you know, nothing, um, nothing curt, nothing rude, nothing even harsh. He says, my child, your sins are forgiven. Which we would love to hear those words for ourselves from Jesus himself. But guess what? I'm guessing it's actually disappointing for this guy to hear. I'm guessing it's a disappointment for this paralyzed man to hear. Because the truth is, the guy didn't really come to be forgiven. He came to be healed. And not that forgiveness is not important to him. It's just that I doubt he was all that concerned about the state of his heart compared to this desire of maybe he could walk again someday. But just like he always does, Jesus is doing so much more in this moment than is immediately clear. And looking around the room, you know, Jesus not only needs to make this a moment for the paralyzed man and all his friends, but also there are religious teachers in the room, Pharisees, other leaders in the room, and he needs to kind of make this a teaching moment for everybody. Typically, Jesus always has something for everybody in the room. Verse 6 of chapter 2. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. Uh, It's things like this that I hope we never tire of hearing or learning about, you know, when someone's life has changed because of an encounter they have with Jesus. I want to look at these two main interactions that Jesus has here, one with the paralyzed guy and his friends, and another with uh, these religious leaders and teachers. Uh, I imagine, you know, these religious teachers, leaders, I imagine they probably have the front row seats because they probably think they deserve it. I can just imagine them, like, you know, reclined in their lazy boys, being all relaxed, because they're really not there because they're interested or curious about Jesus, at least not in the way we would think. They're mainly there because... They really don't like Jesus, they don't like him as a teacher, and they're just kind of lying in wait so they can kind of jump in and discredit him, or point out where they think he's doing something wrong. You know, as much as they, uh, as much as they think they know about God, truth is their hearts are pretty hardened. We've heard about these Pharisees and leaders before, uh, and chances are compassionate is not a word that they would be synonymous with, at least not all the time. So they find their in when Jesus tells the paralytic that his sins are forgiven. And they start whispering among themselves that this is blasphemy because Jesus just in this moment equated himself with God. That is one form 
of blasphemy, <clears throat> putting ourselves on the same level as, <clears throat> as God. They're right in that they say that only God has the authority to forgive sins and no one else does. They're certainly right there. But if Jesus was anyone besides Jesus, they would have been correct and they would have had grounds to actually stone and kill him. But this is Jesus. You know, being God's son, he has been given the authority to forgive people from his father. And because he has that authority, he's also going to prove it. He asked them, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up, pick up your mat and walk? Now, growing up, whenever I would hear this story, I was always super confused by these questions that he posits to these religious leaders. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, I, I don't know, they, they both kind of seem easier to say. And I would say both out loud in sentences. And I was like, is there a tongue twister here that I don't know about? You know, what is... And eventually I learned that that was exactly Jesus' point. They're both really easy to say. One is not any more difficult than the other. Jesus' point, he's pretty much saying, they're both easy for me to say, and also they're both easy for me to do. I'm going to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins because I also have the authority to do miracles. And I'm going to prove that right now because I'm going to heal and put back together this man's nervous systems right in front of your very eyes. And he turns and he says these words to the paralyzed guy, stand up, take your mat, and go home. And the man jumps up. And the people in the house, they part like the Red Sea, and he walks out of this house on his own two feet. And the Pharisees didn't like this. They don't, they don't tend to like much of anything. Because just in that moment, a number of things happened. One was their view of God was challenged. Their idea of God was so small, and they had God in such a tiny little box that there were no room for surprises, no room for mysteries, no room for miracles. And if you read any gospel, you know, time and time again, these Pharisees and religious leaders, they get angry with Jesus. And over the chapters and chapters of Mark and the other guys, they get angry and anger so much that it gets to a point that they decide he needs to be killed. But that's not today. That's not this chapter. You know, in this moment, you know, Jesus is proving that God is at work and he is in this moment redefining who God is. Not that God has changed, but it's just that their view of God was just so incorrect. You know, here they're losing control of their false view of who God is. And just like anyone else, you know, when we start losing control, we get angry or we even get afraid. Usually, or even sometimes, both. We lose control, we get angry, and we get scared. I honestly think that buried beneath the anger of these religious leaders, they were afraid of what was going on. Jesus performs this miracle to teach people about his authority and also the power of forgiveness, that one is just as powerful as the other. In Mark 2, faith wins and fear and anger lose. So how about this paralytic and his four friends? Uh, in July of 2015, so almost two years ago, uh, I co-led this mission trip to Jamaica. It was mainly made up of older high school students and some college students. And if ever I get to co-lead or lead a trip like this, I try to make it you know, as memorable and as meaningful as possible. And I had this idea of how to you know, wrap up the week in a very cool way and also make everybody cry a lot at the same time. So we're all gathered on a Friday night. It's like the last full you know, day of the mission trip. And I introduced this thing called Give a Shirt, Take a Shirt. And how it works is, you know, you guys will be, you know, the room full of people and I'll be me. And so we got this table up here and it's full of shirts. As many people as in the room, that's how many shirts there are. 
And the idea is, as you know, person number one, I take a shirt, and we just had this wonderful week together, so I want to give this shirt to somebody that they're going to keep. And so I would, you know, you could give this shirt away for a number of reasons. You know, I, I, want you to give, I want to give you this shirt because, you know, we've been friends forever and we only got closer this week and I love you to death. Here's a shirt. Or maybe, you know, we didn't know each other going into the week, but I just feel so close to you and we're going to be friends forever now. Here's a shirt. Or here, I want to give this shirt to so-and-so because I saw them uh, just do the most selfless thing this week and they thought nobody noticed and I just wanted to commend you for your servant's heart. You know, here's a shirt. Things like that. Meaningful things that this could be. And it's always wonderful when I get to do this. I don't, you know, get to do this nearly as often as I'd like to. But it's uh, always, always, always powerful. Anyway, for this particular night, there is uh, one interaction that I'm going to remember the best. Uh, there were two guys on the trip. They'd been, you know, uh, good friends, practically the best friends, you know, since grade school. And the one who gets up to give his shirt away, his faith journey had been difficult and had been rocky, to put it lightly. And he gets up and almost immediately, you know, he, he pauses, which means that the tears are coming, which this is nothing new because all of us have been doing the ugly crying, you know, the whole time. And he's, you know, like, you know, want to give this shirt to, to you. And in front of everybody, he says, the theme or the idea was, if not for you, my friend, I would not be standing here. And he opened up his heart and he thanked him for, way back in middle school, inviting him to church. And not only for inviting him, but being persistent in inviting him. Because there were times when he didn't want to go. There were times when he would ignore phone calls and texts. And there were times when he would just cut off all communication because this guy was being so assertive in his love for his friend. And the entire room was a mess because we had this... Uh, we saw right in front of us what can happen when one friend is so persistent in his love when salvation is on the line. I'm never going to forget that. And when it comes to things like this, I don't know, when it comes to things like this, you know, I just always think to myself, you know, where would I fall in this? Of those two people, you know, do I even identify with one of them? Like, how persistent am I with all this? You know, I think of these four guys and their paralyzed friend who really depends on them for everything. You know, the only way this paralyzed guy gets around is if each of these guys take one of the corners of the mat and takes him somewhere. And probably the only way that he gets to live and make money is if they take him to a busy part in the city on a street corner or a sidewalk and just dump him on uh, you know, the beginning of the day so he can you know, beg or just depend on the compassion of people walking by. And then at the end of the day, they come back, pick him up, and they take him on home. And they do what they can to make his life easier or even better. And the nature of friendship is you know, if they could heal him, then they would. You know, if they could take away, take away his pain, then they would, but they can't. But one day, they hear about this guy who can. They hear that Jesus, who's just a few blocks away at Peter's house, can do this very thing. He can do miracles. He can heal people. And they pick up their buddy from his spot on the corner and rush to Peter's house because Jesus is the only one who can fix him. But they get there, and there's no room inside. And many people would have shrugged their shoulder and said... Oh, well. But not these guys. You know, they love their friends so much 
Their love was so great, and they wanted him to find healing so badly that they become vandals, they climb a house, and they dig a hole through a roof. A human-sized hole dropping him right in front of Jesus, at Jesus' feet. It's clear that these guys were not ever, ever going to take no for an answer. And I wonder if the same can be said of me. Can the same be said of us? I know some of us in this room, we're good at this. We're good on taking on that kind of evangelistic role, to use that Bible word. But some of us feel like we're just not. You know, I know everyone in this room, we're all here because uh, someone once told us about Jesus. And we all have friends uh, that we can bring to mind that we know who can find healing and forgiveness in Jesus who just haven't yet. If you call a person in your mind, you know, if you could relieve or ease their pain, that you would. If you could bring joy and peace and even salvation to uh, their life, then you would. But we can't. But we do know someone who can. You know, if uh, there's this hypothetical, you know, if by chance you invite, you know, you're someone, you're a friend to, uh, to church on a Sunday morning or an event that we're doing, and you know, typically there's a response of, if it's not a yes, then it's a, you know, thanks, but I'm busy that weekend, or they have an excuse. Sometimes valid, sometimes not. You know, how many of us is our reaction like, oh, oh, well, I tried. I did what I was supposed to do. Or do you persist and do you dig a hole in a roof? One thing I know from Mark chapter 2 is, you know, not only is having a persistent faith that Jesus can forgive and heal your friend more important than uh, your fear, but it is also more powerful. You know, these first verses in Mark 2, they undeniably tell us that faith is always, always more powerful than fear. If you're uh, someone who fills in the blanks, it's there for you. While putting together my piece of this morning, a dear friend came to my mind who I need to invite to this church. For the only reason is because I love him. And if he says he's too busy, I'm going to ask him again. And then I'm going to ask him again, and I'm going to ask him again, and you all have permission to hold me accountable to this. Because I'm being serious about it. Right now, for all of us, I'm going to pray that God brings to your mind that one individual, just one, We'll put all our prayers on one person. I'm going to pray that he brings us that person to your mind so that we wouldn't be a people who would walk away when we see a house full. Because I want to be a community that immediately thinks, I'm going to dig through a roof. Pray with me. Father, I will pray on behalf of all of us a brief yet powerful and expectant prayer that in this moment... You would bring to each of our minds that one friend, that one family member, that one coworker, even that one acquaintance, that you can bring healing and forgiveness and peace and joy and grace to their lives that we cannot, that only you can. So impress upon our hearts that we will invite, that we will reach out, no matter how uncomfortable or how fearful we might be of rejection, that our faith in you would be so much more powerful than fear. I pray that you do not let us forget this until it is done. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. I want to thank Andrew for doing a great job developing this wonderful story found in Mark 2. And, and uh, I've never thought of these friends as vandals before. That was a new insight for me. But uh, 
We, we, uh, we're grateful for Andrew, his ministry with students, but we're also grateful for his uh, teaching talent, and we want to utilize that more and more on the weekend. So I want to make it clear that the reason that Andrew has done the bulk of the teaching this week has nothing to do with the fact that there's been 40 college basketball games the last three days, okay? Or that, that I was up very late last night watching my sweet 16-bound Purdue Boilermakers play at 9.40 p.m. last night. And for those of you who love basketball like I do, the greatest game ever invented is that there will be eight more games today. Now, being a lifelong basketball fan, I remember when there were only 32 teams in the tournament and only 29 games in the entire tournament. There were 40 already this past three days. And the games were never played on Sunday like the eight games today. For that matter, the only games that ever were played on Sunday when I was growing up were the professionals. College, high school, and youth sports never had games on Sundays. You see, Sundays were a day reserved for family, a day reserved for worship, a day reserved for rest. I miss those days. In Jesus' day, the day for rest and worship was not Sunday, but it was the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath, Saturday. You see, the early Christians, once they uh, were in, they embraced Jesus and his teachings, they began to worship on the first day of the week, Sunday, to honor the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And yet Jesus, who was Jewish and lived among Jewish people, he lived in a setting that Saturday was that day, as still Orthodox Jews today observe Saturday as the Sabbath. It's in this setting that that we learn more about Jesus' healing touch. This time with an encounter with a man who had a deformed hand. Let's read about it in Mark chapter 3 as we learn that relationships are more important than religion with Jesus. In Mark 3 verse 1 it says, Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. Then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At once, the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Now, as we just read, the critics of Jesus were looking for an opportunity to discredit him. So they tried to catch him in breaking the Old Testament uh, law of Moses. 
Yet I'm not sure how Jesus asking this man to stand up in front of everyone and asking this man to hold out his deformed hand, I'm not sure how Jesus asking those things was really working. And yet that's how they perceived it. You see, once again, a command that the Lord had given his people as a gift, as a healthy boundary for life. He, he wanted to make sure that his people didn't work seven days a week, that they had a day of rest, a day to remember that they were his children. Uh, uh, something that God had given originally as, as a healthy boundary in life, they had turned into an opportunity to judge others. It's a classic example of the difference between religion and relationships. And yet Jesus' question was brilliant in this moment. He says, is this a day to save life or to destroy it? Now here's the irony. Jesus' critics were busy working on the Sabbath doing what? Plotting how they were going to kill him. And his question was brilliant to call that out. You see, once again in this encounter, the, we see the foreshadowing of Jesus' eventual death on the cross. And of course, his resurrection that came later, which we're going to observe at the end of this series, at the end of Mark's gospel. Now, in the midst of this showdown between Jesus and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, we see Jesus getting upset with their calloused, hard hearts. They were so caught up in keeping the religious rules that they had missed the heart of God. They were so busy scrutinizing Jesus and trying to get the upper hand that they didn't even see the needs of this poor man with a deformed hand. And, and I believe he was a poor man because, you see, with a deformed hand, he wouldn't have been able to work in, in that culture with his hands and, and probably couldn't provide a living for himself and and, and, and they didn't see any of that. Instead of a statistic or a test case, Jesus saw the man and had compassion on him. And he put a place in the plan of how to bring healing into his life. Now, here's the question for me as I read this text and a question I want to present to you. How about us? Do we get caught up in the pressing, urgent deadlines at work, in the business with activities of our family that we miss seeing the needs of people around us? Do we see the price that would be involved and that would cost us to, to help someone that has a need and, and we think through the inconvenience that would be, that would be involved and, and we choose not to get involved? We lose sight of the hurting that needs to be addressed. Are we so busy being involved in religious activities that, that we lose sight of the relationships close to us? Are we putting our trust in our religious heritage, our religious activities, and even our religious rule keeping that we lose sight of the most important thing, relationships, relationships with God and relationships with other people? Let's remember that Jesus, with Jesus, relationships are more important than religion. Now, before we transition to a time of communion, 
We want to look at another encounter as we also see Jesus' healing touch. And we see that his healing touch was not just for those who were physically sick, but also for those who recognized that they were spiritually sick. As we conclude with a reminder that so often the sick are more receptive than saints. Now, I'm using saints kind of loosely there, but bear with me. The sick are more receptive often than saints. Let's read about that. Let's back up to chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2, we see Jesus addressing somebody who is spiritually sick. In verse 13, it says, Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. I love this story. And it's a great reminder for us before we observe a time of communion. You see, in this encounter, Levi, whose last name was not Strauss, by the way, was described by other gospel writers as Matthew. That's how Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, describes himself. Maybe it's because he wanted a new name. We see, as a tax collector, he was considered to be scum by the religious elite. And yet, Levi, who most likely had a reputation of being a dishonest, thieving tax collector, saw his obvious need to be forgiven and to be healed spiritually. Levi was so receptive that when he was given the invitation to follow Jesus and be a disciple of Christ, he immediately left everything that he was doing and accepted that invitation. He was so grateful for this opportunity for a new life and and a new sense of purpose that he in turn shared that good news with others. And, And because of the circles that he'd run in, when he thought of who he could share the good news with, it was other people that had been involved in tax collecting, other people that were considered the sinners by the religious elite. So, so what Levi does is he throws a party for Jesus. He invites Jesus into his home and he invites all the other disreputable people that he knew and said, hey, I want you to meet a guy that's changed my life. That's what evangelism is, isn't it? The word evangelism just means sharing good news. It it gets a bad rap today, but it just means that you have been impacted so much by the good news of Jesus that you want to share it with others. Maybe invite somebody to your home for coffee and just share I want to share with you what means the most to me. You see, that's, that's 
evangelism, like Andrew talked about earlier, being persistent in it. Now, here's the good news for you and for me. Even when we see our brokenness, even when we see our human frailty, and even at times when we're honest with ourselves that we're just flat out disobedient and we do what we know we shouldn't do, Jesus is on record of saying that he came for us. He came for people like Levi and for me that recognize their sinfulness. And he came inviting us to follow him and to be his disciple. To be someone who's willing to truly allow Jesus to bring healing to our thinking, our head, to our hearts, and to even the activities of our lives, what we're involved with with our hands. One of my favorite quotes from Max Lucado, the author, is, God loves you just the way you are but he refuses to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. Have you accepted this call to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus? Have you accepted this call to be ever changed to become more like Jesus? Every weekend here at Southwest, we observe a time of communion. Another name for communion is the Lord's Supper which is my favorite description of this ordained faith event. You see, as we think about the Lord's Supper, Jesus is inviting us, just like he invited Levi and his friends, he's inviting us to dine with him, to regularly uh, celebrate his love for us. But also, it's it's a time for us to regularly examine our own lives and our hearts. And here's some questions I want to ask you as we enter into communion this weekend. Do you, do I, see our need for forgiveness? Do you, do I, see our need for a Savior? Do you, do do I see our need for ongoing transformation to become more like the one that we follow, Jesus? Let's allow this time of communion to truly be a significant encounter that we accept Jesus' invitation to dine with him just like Levi, just like the other sinful scum that we say, yeah, count me in. I need a savior. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you that you sent your son to this earth for sinners like Levi, like me. Help us, Father, during this time of communion to reflect on our need, desperate need for Savior to bring healing to our life. And yet also, Father, during this time of communion, Help us examine our hearts and our attitudes and ask ourselves, are we becoming more like the one we follow every day? Thank you for your patience, God. When I fall short, 
but help me never settle for not becoming more like your son. Help us to reflect on that during this time of communion. It's in Jesus we pray. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and 11.15 a.m. Your voice.